turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The songs that we just sang are very fitting for what the Lord wants to tell us this morning from uh, His Word. You know, we uh, are reading some scripture this morning having to deal with Israel. And I want you to know that you and I fit right into that group this morning. God's Word was written to them from Matthew he was writing to the Israelites. He was trying to convince them and show them that Jesus was their king. He was their Messiah. That means he's your king and he's your Messiah. And so these words written to Israel are very fitting for you and I today to, to listen to, to understand what God is trying to say to us. I know that you understand the world situation right now. You've had your ear and eye to the television uh, radio and you're understanding what's going on uh, uh, across the globe with Russia trying to take over Ukraine. And so we, we think about that and we sometimes we uh, might even think about worrying about that a little bit. Um, Jesus made a promise in this very book of Matthew that we would hear rumors of wars and we would see wars happening, but that end is not yet. Right? The end will not come until the gospel is preached across the world. And that's when the end will come. And that's what God reassures us. Now, when that will take place, we, we don't know. We don't know when he's going to step back into time. We don't know when he's going to reveal himself and, and establish his kingdom here on this earth. Uh, with him in person. His kingdom is here today on this earth. And so you and I can be a part of that kingdom. And he wrote this letter Matthew did to the Israelites, to the Jews, to uh, help them understand some things that had gone astray in their society. And if it was ever so fitting for them, it is ever more fitting for us today in our society. You know, we want to be different, and, and we claim as a church to be the called out ones. That's what the word church in the Greek means, called out. God called out Israel from Egypt, right? God called us out of the world. And he put us together in what we call a church. And so we, we know that we're different than the world. We're called out. We have purpose. We have reason to be together here. We, we have a scarlet thread running through every heart in this room. That scarlet thread is Christ. The blood of Christ brings us together, draws us close to each other. And so the Jews had that thought as well in the time this was written. They, they had things figured out. They were different than everybody else. They were Jewish for God's sake. They were different. But yet, Jesus had to come at a proper time in a proper reason to give these words to those people. Because he said, ultimately, that you're not different. You have become just like the world. You were to be different. You were to be the light of the nations. You were to share the glory of God with the world. But these people misunderstood well, let's say they didn't misunderstand. They just turned within instead of without. So now here we are as Americans, and we think we're different as the church. We're 
We're not the same as society. We're different. But unfortunately, when you look at statistics, and I want you to know I'm not a all up on statistics, but it's a way for us to compare. So when we look at the church and we look at society in America, we, we would expect to see a big difference, but unfortunately we don't. We're, we're seeing the same things happening in the church that are happening outside of the church. Take, for instance, our students. They're as likely today being in the church to lie to their teacher as someone that doesn't go to church. A Christian young man is as likely to lie to his mom and dad as somebody who doesn't go to church. A Christian is likely to cheat on a test as someone who doesn't go to church. We're not really seeing a difference. In fact, we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing that the church doesn't impact society anymore. Things are not like we would want them to be in our little group here of the church. We, we look too much like the world. We've lost our significance. We've lost our influence. It's because we've become just like them. We sang a song, the last one we sang, it says, I see the Lord is drawing a line in the sand. And I bet every one of you in here sang, and I want to be standing on your side. Amen? Amen. I want to be on God's side. In order to be on God's side, then I have to be God's people. So Jesus came at the proper time and he spoke these words that we're going to read to the Jews and to you and I today to tell them there is a difference. I've drawn the line in the sand. I want there to be a difference in you and in your life. He spoke about the kingdom. The greatest sermon ever preached was about the kingdom of God and what that meant and what that looked like. And it was not to happen when you pass from this life and step into eternity in heaven. That's not where the kingdom starts. Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. It's right here before you. It's here now. And so the Lord's drawing a line in the sand for us today. For you individually as a person, God says, I'm going to draw a line this morning and I want you to choose a side. Pick which side you're going to be on. And if you get serious about it, and you'll understand that the Lord is very serious about his kingdom when we finish today, you'll want to be on his side, I pray. All right, let's stand together and read Matthew chapter 5, a couple of verses. Uh, We'll read, well, more than a couple, but we'll not read it all. But I want to talk about the first verses in particular. Matthew 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men 
or people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the, name, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, help us to pick that side this morning as you draw that line in the sand before us. And Father, help us to see what it means to be in your kingdom. Help us to get rid of the differences that aren't in our life. Help us to be different. Help us to be kingdom people. Help us to shine your light wherever we go. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, the name Matthew, the man who wrote this book, his name was Levi. He was a tax collector, right? And when he became a Christian, he became a follower of Christ. God changed his name to Matthew. We saw many people in the Bibles, their names were changed when they had an encounter with God. Matthew means a gift from God. So I hope you'll remember that when you read the book of Matthew. It is a gift from God to you, the book of Matthew. Matthew wrote to the Jews to try to convince them that Jesus was their king, their Messiah, that they needed to listen to him, to observe him, to recognize him, and to follow him. Amen? So the Sermon on the Mount is given at a specific time, at a specific place. As I said, Israel needed to hear this message. They had turned inward with their religion instead of outward. You know, a church cannot be a witness if it's struggling to keep its own head above water. Right? So you and I need to reconsider what we're here for and the reason that God has put us in this place is to shine His light, to be a beacon, to be a lighthouse, to share the gospel wherever we go with whomever we meet at any time in any place. That's what we do as Christians. That was our purpose. That's what Israel had failed to do. That's why the church in America has lost its significance and its impact. It's turned within. It's trying to keep its head afloat. We need to understand that. The Lord came to set Israel straight. He said, you have taken your culture and you have wrapped it with religion and then you have made a lot of assumptions within that religion and culture. Therefore, God gave the Ten Commandments and some other laws, but man began to add to those laws and a Jewish man ended up having to keep over 600 laws to be a good old Jewish boy. And today, you and I in America, we have that same philosophy. We've taken our culture, we've taken our religion and our beliefs, and we've wrapped it up in the way we want to live, and we make many assumptions about our beliefs and our culture, and we call that religion, or we call that going to church, or we call that being a good old American boy or girl. And so we live by those expectations of what we've added to truth instead of just living by truth. So Jesus came to set all of that straight. He told the Jews, all these assumptions that you are making are wrong. He's telling you and I today that some of the assumptions that I've made about what is right and wrong, some are correct, but some are incorrect. And you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says this, You have heard it said, but I say. 
You have heard it said not to commit adultery. But I say, if you look on a woman with lust in your eyes, then you've already committed adultery. You have heard it said to love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say to love your enemies. You see, the Jews had assumptions. We have assumptions about how to live. And what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. And Jesus comes this morning to show us, you have heard this, but I say this. Right? So we need to listen to what he's saying. We need to get rid of our assumptions about what's right and wrong and how we live our life. And we need to be careful about it. The first verse we read in second, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. Now I want you to look on the screen at the last of the Sermon on the Mount and what it says. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their Sunday school teacher. Or not as their pastor. Or not as their scribes. Right? Jesus was teaching something completely off the wall. Way out there. Totally different than what they were used to. Because of their culture and their religion and their assumptions about right and wrong. You know, a scribe would teach like this. He would read the scripture, he would stand up in the synagogue, and he would give his interpretation of it. And like a pastor today, that's what I do. I read the scripture, I look at commentaries, I get an interpretation and I deliver it to you. Of course I want to be correct. I would never want to tell you anything that's wrong. But this is what the scribes would teach like. And the scribes were famous for quoting other rabbis. Oh, rabbi so-and-so says this. And rabbi such-and-such says that. And you've seen me put quotes on the screen from famous Christian men and women in our past. But when Jesus taught, he didn't teach like that. He didn't quote anybody. You have heard it said, but I say. You see, what he was doing there is that he was was saying, I have come to fulfill the law. In fact, he said that in the the message. He said, uh, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that these people were trying to live by. And he said this, I am the interpreter of what is true and false. Not you, scribe. Not you, pastor. Not you, Sunday school teacher. I am. You have heard it taught to you. Such and such. But I say. So Jesus is now setting himself up as the interpreter of truth. These people hadn't heard that before. Old scribe, whatchamacallit, wouldn't say anything like that. 
Oh, Rabbi so-and-so wouldn't talk like that to us. But Jesus speaks with authority. That's what we just read. Amen? Didn't we see that? He taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And so Jesus sets himself up in this message with the one with authority. The question for you and for me, does he have the authority in my life? Is what he says, are, are these red letters important to me? Are these red letters what drives my life and motivates me and directs my thought and heart and spirit as a man? Are the red letters, what God says to me, important? And do they have authority in my life? Jesus set himself up to be that. He said, I fulfilled the law. I'm the consummation of the law. No longer are you to be loyal to the law. You are to be loyal to me. You are to follow me, not the law. You are to listen to my interpretation of truth because I am the only interpreter of truth. And then he says something else in Matthew 7. Look on the screen. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Never before had they ever heard anything like that. You know, we use the word Lord, and if you had a little English tie to your history, you might think uh, Lord Marmaduke or some, some weird name like that. It's just a title of a person. But when God, the Son, says it, it is not just Lord, it is Adonai. It is God. Many of you will say to me, God, God. But you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he drew the line and you stayed on your side. You drew the line and didn't give Christ's words authority in your life. You did not obey the word of God. Isn't that what he says? Not everybody will enter, but who enters? But he who does the will of my Father. He will enter into heaven so now, Jesus has said that I am the interpreter of truth, right? I am the fulfillment of the law, and I am the Lord. And these people were probably like, whoa, wow, who is this guy? What is he saying? Where does he get this authority? How, how come we're hearing these things? They were amazed, as the scripture told us. And so, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever lived, amen, starts out with this. He is the interpreter of truth. He is God. And he is the fulfillment of the law that they were trying to follow. I know you and I, as Christians, we don't follow a law. As Baptists, we don't have a creed, as some denominations have, like the Catholics have a creed that they follow or believe in. We don't have that as Baptists. But you and I have certain rules that we want to follow, right? We, we want to be, uh, we got Baptist rules, so to speak. Don't go dancing. Y'all remember that one? That was a long time ago. You know, my parents used to square dance. When I was born, and my brother and my sister, and we'd go with them, and they'd square dance and do all that. Then they got invited to church one day. 
And they went to a Baptist church and square dancing went out the window. It's silly, isn't it? In a way, there's nothing wrong with dancing. I believe that all came from the fact that it's where you had to go to go dancing. That was the problem. But there's nothing wrong with Gil and I holding each other and getting on a floor and dancing to some music. Is that unbiblical? Of course not. But we got rules, right? We got rules that we got to follow and do things as Baptists. And so I want you to understand those are assumptions. Again, those are man-made rules, man-made assumptions. And God wants us to be able to cast those aside today and, and hear what he has to say about it. So Jesus says these things. He says all the assumptions are gone. I want you to know that I am the giver of truth and the speaker of truth. Chapter 5 of this Sermon on the Mount has to deal with um, the kingdom and the people in the kingdom and what they look like and how they are to live. Chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with our relationship with God, our intimacy with God. Chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount gives us some practical ways of living out the message. Right? Not judging each other. How to pray, so forth and so on. Today we're just going to talk about the first two Beatitudes. That's all we really have time for. I want to go through this Sermon on the Mount with you in the next few weeks together. And we'll dig in and we'll find out what Jesus is teaching us about truth and how we are to really live. So, he begins the Sermon on the Mount by teaching the basics. Look in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? The poor in spirit, right? Happy are the poor in spirit. Now that's not what the world teaches me. The world doesn't teach me to be Poor in spirit. It doesn't teach me to be humble, right? The world doesn't say that I get congratulated for being poor in spirit. The world teaches me that I need self-esteem. The world teaches me that I need a self-image. The world teaches me that I hate to have self-worth in order to be happy. My goodness, there's even churches today that call themselves Christians that teach you to have this high esteem of yourself. Amen? There's some of them right on TV. Some of you probably listened to that guy this morning. Told you how to be good and feel good about yourself. But Jesus said, the ones who are really happy are the ones who are poor in spirit. We don't have a high self-esteem. In fact, our society tells us that criminals have low self-esteem, not people who are happy. Our society tells us that if you've got a low self-esteem, you need to go to a, behavior, a modification behavior program, right? You need to have your attitude adjusted if you've got low self-esteem because you won't be happy with that. But here Jesus says the opposite. Isn't that interesting? The things in the kingdom of God are opposite of what our society is striving for and working towards. In fact, a person who has a business, he's not going to look for somebody that's poor in spirit to work for him, is he? He's going to want an aggressive person. He's going to want somebody who's willing to climb the ladder. He's going to want somebody who's willing to be assertive of himself. In high school, the humble person doesn't get elected class president, right? 
The humble and lowly person isn't chosen as the one most likely to succeed in high school. But here Jesus says he's going to be the happy person. He'll be the blessed person, the one with the poor in spirit. That's interesting. I love this. The Lord teaches us this way. The world doesn't appreciate the poor in spirit. Jesus said, and the world says, two different things. I'm drawing a line in the sand. Lord, I want to be on your side. Then Jesus says, get poor in spirit, son. Get poor in spirit, and you'll be on my side. What does he mean by that? Who are these people that are poor in spirit? Well, if you think of the word poor, you think of poverty, right? We think of poverty. So if Jesus is referring to poverty in spirit, to have poverty in our society means that we are detached from things. We're detached from material things like food or clothing or shelter or a car. To be poor means that you don't have. You are detached from things. If that's what Jesus is referring to, to be poor in spirit, what does he mean? That I am spiritually detached from the materialism of this world. I don't chase the things in this world. I don't look for the things in this world to bring me happiness. I'm detached. Now I'm getting a picture of what he means. Listen, he's serious about it. This is his kingdom people. If you're going to be in his kingdom, you better take note of what he's telling you. You better get yourself detached from the lure of materialism in our world. And when you can do that, then you can attach yourself to him. That's the whole idea of being poor in spirit. To have this attachment to Christ. This person finds that now he doesn't need self-esteem. He has Christ-esteem. It's not who I say that I am. It's not who you say that I am. It is who He says that I am. Amen? I want Christ-esteem in my life. I want to be on His side of that line. I want to be in His kingdom I need to pay attention to what he's telling me. I need to be poor in spirit. Hey, joining the church and getting baptized in that water and putting your money in the plate doesn't make you poor in spirit. You think, well, I put all my money and it makes me poor. That's not the idea. It doesn't make you poor in spirit to join a church. What makes you poor in spirit is that you detach yourself from the world. Hey, there's some church members in our society today that really don't know the concept of being poor in spirit. And if they do know it, They don't desire it. Okay? They don't desire it, well, because they want position, or they want prominence, or they want power. One of the other apostles, he wrote a letter that we call 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In 3 John, oops, oh, I got the wrong verse up there. I got the right text, just the wrong red letters. It says this in 3 John. John writes, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. There's some church members that don't know the concept of poor in spirit. 
But Jesus is teaching us this morning about what that means. Oh yeah, we all hear reports of people uh, who, who seek honor in the church, who seek position in the church, who seek power in the church. But Jesus says the one who's happy is the one who's poor in spirit. What do these people receive that are poor in spirit? Well, let's look in verse 3. He says, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you play by the rules of this world, you'll make some money and you'll put it in your pocket and you'll have it for a short time. But if you play and obey by God's rules, you will have everything forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Deny yourself. Deny the world and attach yourself to Jesus and He will give you the kingdom of heaven. That's what He promised right here. Amen? The first one. You get full citizenship. You get all the benefits of the kingdom of heaven if you would be poor in spirit. Now let's look at the second one. That's all the time we'll have for today. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know what? I got on the internet to find a picture to put up there on the screen. And so I just typed in, blessed are those who mourn uh, on Google Images. And you know what comes up? People crying. Hey, that's good. But then uh, it was people like crying at funerals and people crying at hospitals. And and so it, uh, it wasn't the idea that I think the Lord is teaching us here. It's not the blessed are those who cry. It has to go deeper than that. And it does. And you may have that in your thinking this morning that it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I can understand that. Blessed are those who mourn. Hey, I cry at a good movie. I I cry when I get whooped, kids. I I cry when somebody hurts me. That's not what he's saying here. What he is saying is far deeper than that spiritually. And so let's uncover it together. To be happy, you have to be sad, according to verse 4. Blessed, happy are those who mourn. Now, you don't get congratulated in our society for mourning, right? Who are these who mourn? They are the ones who are poor in spirit to begin with. And secondly, they're the ones who've attached themselves to Christ. And when you attach yourself to Christ, Jesus made a promise that He would give you the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. So when you attach yourself to Christ and you get the Holy Spirit, suddenly you begin to see yourself as Jesus sees you. And then, suddenly, you begin to mourn over your condition. And you begin to mourn over the sin in the world and the sin in your life and the sin that has its claws in you day by day by day. That's what he means by mourning. To mourn over the sin in my life. Blessed is the man who sees himself as God sees him. You can only do that with the Holy Spirit, my friend. A carnal Christian, someone who claims to be Christian but is not following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, you can't gather up this Sermon on the Mount. It's beyond you. 
If you're a lost man and you've never come to Christ in your life and you're sitting here and you will not be able to understand what I'm talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's only for those who have the Spirit of God. That's why Jesus started at the beginning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And when you do that and detach from the world and attach to Christ, then you are able to see yourself as you truly are. A failure to mourn for your sin explains the lack of power in many Christians' lives. When's the last time you saw somebody crying right here in this church? When's the last time you cried over your sin in this church? You see what I'm saying? Blessed are those who mourn. When's the last time that you saw your sin as God sees it and it caused you to mourn? Man, when I started studying this to prepare for today, I I just about couldn't take it. That I thought that Jesus was drawing that line And he wants me to step across into his kingdom and live like he's indicating here in the scripture. You know what? I I mourn when I see our media and our politicians divorcing morality from politics. I mourn over that. I mourn over prime time television in America today. I mourn over that. When I got my grandbabies at my house and stuff comes on at 7 o'clock in the evening that we all should be able to watch and it's rated G and they've got immorality all over the screen, I mourn for that. Not like I should, but I do in my spirit. It bothers me. Amen. I hope that it begins to bother you. I mourn when I hear a woman on television who is searching for a candidate that she can vote for who will support her abortion rights. I mourn over that. I mourn when I see the highest office in our land appointing men and women who are openly homosexual and transgender. I grieve over that. Those people are running our country. My country. I grieve over that. Not because I'm against them. Because I see the sin in their life and I grieve over that sin. I grieve over what our New Age uh, movement is teaching my kids in school under the name of education. I grieve because evolution has got its grip on our children in this society. I grieve over things like that. They bother me. I grieve over the line that I stand in at Walmart and look at the magazines in the rack. I turn my back because I mourn that my nation has become this way. And this is normal in our society to look at that. To read it right up there where the bubble gum and candy bars are. Amen? I mourn over that stuff. I hate that stuff. I mourn how I get on the internet and type in a religious phrase and up pops heresy all over the internet. 
I mourn when I see a young Jehovah Witness or a Mormon boy riding his bike down my street spreading hellish lies to my neighbors. I mourn over that. I don't like it. I mourn over my relatives and my friends who are headed for hell. I mourn over them. It breaks my heart to see it and to understand that they're my blood. And yet, they're bound for the devil's hell because they won't detach and attach to Jesus. I mourn over the fact that I don't mourn enough. And it doesn't give me any comfort that you don't either. Church, Jesus drew the line. Do you think He's serious about His kingdom? Just the first two Beatitudes, we find how serious He is. I want to challenge you today, church. You better get things straightened out with yourself and the King of Kings. He's coming again. Oh, you'll hear of wars and rumors of war, but that's not the end. The end will come when the gospel is preached all over the land. And today it's being preached in this place. And it's falling on your ears. And it's falling in a place where you have to make a decision about it. As I said, these messages, these words that we read are completely out of reach for a lost man. They are simply out of touch for a carnal Christian and they can only be understood by those who are living and following the Spirit of God. This comfort comes from the Holy Spirit. What comfort? Look in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. What does he mean? When Jesus uh, was teaching us in the book of John in the upper room the night of his arrest, he said, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send another, the comforter to you. He's going to come and comfort you. Now, how is the, how's the comforter going to comfort me when I'm mourning over my sin? Here's how it works. The Holy Spirit removes the guilt from your sin if Christ has paid for your sin. The Holy Spirit comforts you. The Holy Spirit takes the fear of death away from you. I know you're a Christian, many of you in this room, and I know that none of us are looking forward to death, to dying, but I'll promise you this, that if you're a Christian, you're not afraid of it. How do I know that? Because the same faith that Jesus had is available to you. And Jesus knew that His Father wasn't going to leave Him in that tomb. He said, I know that you will raise me again. That's faith. Amen? That's simply faith. And so as a Christian, I can have that same faith that I know when my body dies and stops and I lay in that casket or in that ground or wherever it might be that God will not leave me there. Amen. Amen? And so, with that in mind, the Comforter reassures me of that. He sets me free from anxiety and from grief and from fear. They that mourn receive daily deliverance with comfort. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Poor in spirit 
And those who mourn are the ones who are blessed. This all began uh, this morning with this thought. That you and I and the Jews take our culture and our religion and we wrap it up in a nice little neat package and then we put assumptions around it. And Jesus came and he blew those assumptions out of the water. What have you been assuming about God? Do you assume that it's okay for you to do something that the Bible says no, but you're still doing it? You're still acting upon it. You're still living in it. You're still saying it. You're still being a part of it. You're assuming, you're assuming that it's going to be okay with you and God. And God says, all assumptions aside, I fulfilled the law. I'm the interpreter of truth. And I am God. You better answer to me. Amen? That's what he's saying this morning. I want to close right now with a word of prayer for you and for me that we would answer to the Holy Spirit and God in a right way. Let's bow our heads. Father, we love you. We thank you for your truth. And Lord, you've uh, opened our eyes this morning to things perhaps that we did not understand. And Lord, I pray that you continue to do that in the Sundays ahead. But right now, Father, I know that there are some who need to mourn. Laughter is good, but mourning brings us to you. And Lord, I pray that you would allow each person to see their sin right now in this place and that you would show them there is a plan to deal with it. There is a way to escape it. There is freedom from it. And it's only found through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray right now, Father, that you would bless this moment in your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.